And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 103 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Monday, November 2nd, 2015. So I bring you PNR's Def Jam Poetry Session. The outlook isn't brilliant for the publishers this day, trying business model to business model, but yet one inning more to play. The crowd thought, if only Grantland could get a whack at that, we'd put up even money now with Grantland at bat. But Top Gear preceded Grantland, as did also GigaOM, and the former was a punch in the face. The latter's funding was no-show. So fraud, cried the maddened crowd. The echo answered fraud. But one scornful look from Bill Simmons in the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain. And they knew that Grantland wouldn't let that ball go by again. Like Mets fans' hopes, the smile gone from Grantland's lips. His teeth were clenched in hate. Like the Royals' offense, he pounded with cruel violence his bat upon the plate. And now ESPN holds the ball. And now they let it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Grantland's blow. Oh, somewhere in the land of ads, the sun is shining bright. Native is playing somewhere, and somewhere branded content wins outright. And somewhere content marketers are laughing, and somewhere agency people shout. But there is no joy in publishing today. Mighty Grantland has struck out. All right, enough of that. Let's get this game on and get our show on the road. And for that, it's time for me to introduce my colleague, my friend, my co-host, and the Mr. October of content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? You know, I'm doing fantastic, but I didn't know if you took your meds today or not. <laughs> <laughs> it's Casey at the bat, man. I it's know. Con- it's brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's kind of the LSD version of Casey at the bat. I- yeah, well, you know, I figured William Shatner did the whole, you know, his whole sort of thing with, uh, you know, the Beatles song. And so I thought I would do something with Casey at the I bat like and it. an honorarium. You're, yeah, really, an on- you're, you're really breaking out of your shell. I'm, I'm trying. I'm absolutely I, I, thrilled about this. <laughs> This I'm great. sure you are. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. I'm so happy yes. for you. <laughs> hey, well, speaking of being happy for people, we we did so last week we did this really cool thing. You did you started it with this whole giveaway of your book. Uh, content Inc. and you sort of set the stage for these tweets and we had a bunch of really cool creative tweets. It was pretty amazing. Uh, remarkable, actually. Uh, so, first of all, thank you to everyone. Oh, thank uh, you so, so much. We had so many tweets to keep track of. So actually. much fun. And uh, it was quite uh, difficult to randomly choose. Yes, that's uh, right. Randomly. No wagering, please. Well, and you got to remember, too, they got extra points because you said... Uh, you know, creativity counts. Style creativity, points count. Style and any Justin Bieber reference. That's right. Extra points. That's right. And it's amazing how many Justin Bieber references we actually saw <laughs> out there. And we had... Uh, so five winners. So five... The, and I'll send out a note, and we'll have everyone you know, get uh, in touch with you uh, via Twitter, and we'll take care of your audio version. Uh, so the five winners are you know, KC Boyce, Crafty and Cranky. Nice uh, Twitter name. These are Twitter know. handles, yeah. Twitter, by the Twitter way. handles, yeah. yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, everybody else is up. No names, please. Yeah. Just Twitter <laughs> handles. Shuttle Rock underscore Kim. Hannah Lincoln 87. 
Because and so many Hannah, are there more than 86 Hannah Lincolns out there? Wouldn't I mean, that be are, frustrating? You're like, <laughs> Hannah Lincoln 1. 1. Hannah, Hannah Lincoln, Lincoln 2. two. Oh, <laughs> Hannah Lincoln 34. Come on. What is going on here? Finally, gonna, 87 yeah. opened up. Congratulations, Hannah Lincoln, 87. Right. And, and then, of course, uh, the big winner uh, was, was Scott underscore Phillips underscore again. That's right. Uh, yeah, I guess there because you can't have enough underscore. underscore Phillips. Yeah, so you can't have enough underscore in your life. Exactly, and uh, and you want to give the feedback as to why Scott was the big winner. Well, here. it just—I mean, go search hashtag this old marketing and look at what he created. He just went above and beyond. He created this entire quiz that had me. Quotes from me and quotes from Justin Bieber, and you had to choose which one was which. And it was actually pretty difficult. I had relatives of mine go, yeah, I got most of these wrong, (laughs) you know, which is so funny to me because here it is, as he said, two scions of Western civilization, you know, I I don't know quite where I rank in that, but... Yeah, here here it is. These two guys, and you it, discerning the quotes between the two of them. It was just, it was just over the top, adorable and wonderful, and just great. And it was just funny, really, really funny. But now thinking about it, you know, when I think of who's most <clears throat> like Robert Rose, yeah, Justin the first thing that first Justin Bieber comes leaping comes to, mind. to mind, absolutely, absolutely the right. There is, there is, there. We're like twins, really. We, you know, you can't have us both in the same room, really. I mean. <laughs> For so many reasons. I think you're going to be stuck with this the rest of your life. <laughs> Which always going to be a Biebs reference and, and yes, Robert Rose. Now, my question is, does Scott win your book, too? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so yes, Scott's yes. the big winner because Scott wins... Not only the audiobook for Content Inc., the free audiobook, but he wins Experiences, your fantastic yes. book as well with Carla Johnson. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. So thank right. you, everyone, so, for playing. Thank you actually, so much. You know, that did so well. We'll have to do something again. because Oh, we're going to have to do this more regularly because that's just totally fun. I, I, I love that so much. It was just great. We didn't really know that if anyone was listening. And now that to know that people are actually <laughs> paying attention and, and really are, are quite uh, Quite creative, yeah, yeah, and quite creative about the whole thing. You know, we can get we can get more minutes out of our programming than to talk about this stuff. It just makes it easier on us. Exactly. So, anyway, speaking of thinking a little oh, bit, let's move on to the know, news. The, before shall we get we? into the news, we just have yeah. to mention because we're coming up on it. You and I are going up on our tour here. We've got a oh, yeah, city tour for sure. Yeah, content yeah. marketing conf.com. It's the content marketing masterclass series. Boston, New York, Austin, DC. San Diego, San Francisco. Got that right this time. Yep, so and no Denver. Go out there, and uh, in the next <laughs> six weeks, we're going out and doing the show. So if there's still some tickets left, I think one of them sold out. I don't know if New York sold out or whatever. Oh, still brilliant! Some tickets. Oh yeah, which you're big in New York. You oh, and yeah. the Beebs. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Here we go. So there you go. Now we're ready <laughs> to get started. All right. Let's move on to the folks and uh, get this news show on the road. Our first story is from well, and it has relation to our show too. It comes to us courtesy of ArsTechnica.com, and it is Google Gets Back Into Podcast Distribution. Dun, dun, dun. We're going to pair this with another podcasting story here that we'll talk about in just a minute. But this first one from Ars Technica opens up by saying, hey, remember Google Listen? The Google-made podcast app that took your audio RSS feeds from Google Reader and played them on an Android phone, but the service was killed in August 2012 like Google is wont to do. And Google is finally jumping back into the podcast game with Google Play 
play music podcasts. And so the announcement is very, very light on detail, says the article. And having read the announcement, I would agree wholeheartedly with that. But it seems like Google's going to get back into the podcast distribution game. This is a cool thing. Yes, we're going to be there, of course. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we're already accepted into the, I don't know, they must have really low standards. Absolutely. <laughs> well, accepting you know. the podcast. So we're already there. But, you know, what? this makes perfect sense to me because as we've looked, you know, we talked about on the show the, the amazing research that Ed- Edison Research does and Tom Webster over there. And they talk about share of ear and the, and the demographics as they are and the firmographics behind who listens to podcasts and very, you know, higher in the wealth category, lots of discretional money to spend. Yeah. And I think this is a great play from Google's standpoint because, of course, 98% of Google's revenue comes in through advertising. And here's a platform that Google hasn't taken advantage of, at least when it comes to podcasts. I mean, I, I would imagine that's exactly – as soon as they get these going and you get some listening going on Google Play, that there's got to be an advertising play here, I'm assuming. Sure. Certainly through Android phones. Yes. Certainly, you know, certainly on the, the platforms that they can control the sort of interface into. And I think you know, the, the apps that will come out of that, I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. Well, and paired with this, as we're, as we're just talking about it, um, and speaking of advertising and sort of being able to monetize things. So this courtesy from the NewYorkTimes.com, Pandora will now be the exclusive streaming pr- uh, partner for the very, very hit podcast, Serial. Um, so what did you make of this? I, you know, I, I know we were going back and forth on this. That again, the details were a little light here. Couldn't figure out what really exclusive meant. Um, I think we came to the conclusion that exclusive only meant streaming and that it would still be available on iTunes, just not in a streaming format. Did I get that right? I think that's right. So Pamela Muldoon, our podcast director, sent this over to us, and she's you know basically saw it right away. And I'm thinking first. When I first read it, I'm thinking, oh, man, not on iTunes. No, I think what really is going to happen, they don't say it specifically, but they are the official streaming provider of Serial, Pandora Right, is. right, So I right. think that means that I don't think you'll find it then on Stitcher, and I don't think you'll find it on Spotify. I don't think you'll find it on SoundCloud. I don't think you'll find it on those areas. So it would just be Pandora. And then, of course, you can download it through iTunes. I think. What do you think of that? I mean, well, it's interesting to me because it signals to me that Pandora is trying to expand beyond what certainly I use Pandora for, which is a radio, right? Sort of a random radio station where you know, when I'm not in the mood to think about what I want to listen to, I literally put on one of my stations, and it just randomly pulls songs that will match that, you know, that's what it's known for is matching those songs to that particular artist or that genre, which is what I love. You know, if I'm walking around the house on a Saturday and I'm listening to music, it's a great thing. And this seems to me to be more appointment or, you know, appointment sort of setting programming, which is very, you know, I want to listen to this right now, which seems to be different, but I don't really know a lot about what Pandora is doing from a business perspective, so it seems to be a, a, a pivot of some kind, and maybe this is the first step in that direction, or maybe it's a you know the thirty second step, and I'm just haven't been keeping up. But th- I mean, think about how you use Pandora, right? You, you say, okay, I want uh, the Todd Rundgren station, and I'll hear Todd Rundgren, and then I'll hear a little Beatles, and I'll hear a little bit of the Who, or whatever the case is, right? And then, right. then it comes back right. to a Rundgren. It, let's say that this is a whole new pivot for them, and they're saying, I want to listen to uh, pot, content marketing programming. And you'll hear a little snippet from this old marketing and then on and on and on. Or, I mean, we get approached by companies all the time that say, hey, we want to take five-minute cuts or 10-minute cuts out of your broadcast because they want to republish them. I could then see it. It's the same thing, except it's going to be by topic. 
or I want to hear some fiction. I, I mean, definitely when you're going with serial, you can binge on the whole thing. But maybe this is a thing where podcasts are just – I mean, how long are we going to say they're going to take off? I mean, it, it's it's now steadily growing. More and more people, <laughs> more and more people are listening to audio programming that's not music. This this could be an interesting way. I mean, almost like YouTube is your YouTube is giving more uh, attention to those YouTubers, those people that create videos on YouTube that have longer playtime. Like, sure. I thought it was so interesting yeah. a content marketing world with Matthew Patrick who's featured in Content Inc. the book, and he also gave a couple speeches at Content Marketing World, said the average uh, – you know, we, we always think that the average session time you want it to be is two, two, two minutes, two minutes and 30 seconds would be your video time. And he says, actually, right now, you don't see uh, it d- dip off from a viewership standpoint on a YouTube video until the 17-minute mark. And YouTube is really going after longer – uh, playtime because they get compensated more for ads that way, and then it just it's all a recycling effort. I wonder if the same thing happens on Pandora when you get a longer listen to time or something. Like, I don't know. I'm just throwing stuff out here, but I just no, think I that think that the amount, the different kind of business models here are, are unbelievable. If you think about where we're going to go, I think it's I think it's an interesting idea. You know, I I and I hadn't thought of it because when I think of something like serial, you know, I mean, I think of something like. Us, right? Not, I'm not comparing us to Serial because, come on, that's a great show, and ours is just a couple of <laughs> clowns making fun of the news. But you know, the the idea here is is that Serial is, you know, I, if memory serves, the episodes are an hour long, right? And it's and it's, you know, it's like it's like This American Life and all the other shows that they produce, where it's you want to listen to the whole episode, so that length of time doesn't feel right to me to be sort of a randomly placed, you know, it's not like I'm going to listen to one podcast for an hour and then be magically transported to another podcast and sit for another hour. I don't think maybe, but you could be right. You know, you could be, it's like, well, you're on a long car trip and you just want to listen to some stuff. And so I'm going to put on the, you know, fictional story channel and I'm going to get an episode of Serial, but I don't I don't know. Well, it's, I think it works. See, and I don't want to spend our whole show on this, but I think it works differently for something topical where somebody's making a point. And just like take Sirius XM, right? You go to the comedy station. They do like three minute. Somebody's doing a three minute yes, skit on something right. and goes to another one. That's what I have in my mind for where podcasts are going to go. Where we're, we're just doing one news clip that's six minutes long, and then it cuts off and goes to somebody else. And we're fair just enough. Part of that I think stream. that's yeah. No, I think that's and and you know and coming back to some a show like this one where you actually could dissect it or bisect it into smaller bits, where you know each 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 news item actually or each segment of the show is a is a you know is a segment that you could listen to. In its entirety, um, and actually, you know, and actually, hopefully, get some value out of. Well, if it's like any of our other predictions, this will absolutely yeah, not come absolutely. true. Absolutely, yeah. Just and, chalk uh, this one and, up to, and we've just wasted you know, Apple five buying minutes. Disney, and we just yeah. waited five minutes of our listeners' time. So <laughs> let's go. On let's to move the next on. One. Well, speaking of long view video content, and picking up on a story that we covered last week, and this comes to us courtesy of BusinessInsider.com, PewDiePie, the big YouTube star, says ad blockers are the reason that YouTube Red, the subscription service, is launching. And so the article opens up and says YouTube has just launched the new $9.99 per, uh, per month subscription service that removes all ads 
And one of the video site's biggest stars has an interesting theory on why it did so. PewDiePie, the Swedish YouTube star who has racked up, this is just, this number always slays me, 40 million subscribers to his gaming videos, believes that Google launched the service as a way to bolster a revenue stream that is otherwise getting chopped by the growing popularity of ad blockers. And the article goes on to explain PewDiePie's rationale for this. What do you think, Joe? Is this... Is this the reason for Red or, you know, we talked about this last week and it was, we had, you know, varying theories about why they did this, but uh, ad blockers really wasn't one of them. Well, first of all, shout out to our good friend, James Gardner, who said this. Absolutely. Yes. Give him a little bit of credit for this. The, um, the, I didn't realize now, I I don't know if we can substantiate this outside of PewDiePie, but PewDiePie is is the sort, such a reputable source of information here, uh, 40% of his viewers use software that blocks ads. That, you know, if that's true, that's significant. It says that's up from 15 to 20% about five years ago. Right. So if, if you just kept with that, let's say that that's true. So in another five years, you could be at 60, 70%, maybe more, or we might not even know how we're going to engage in this. Absolutely. I think that this could, YouTube Red could be because what do we do when, Nobody's going to be playing our ads anymore. I mean, do you do you agree with this? Do you think this is a thing? I do. I think it's I think it's one of many things, but I don't think it's the primary thing. I don't think that, you know, I, I certainly don't think that ad blockers were the reason, the sole reason why they they did this. I think this was a recognition of theirs that they weren't, you know, that quite frankly, regardless of whether you have ad blockers or not, the effectiveness of those ads were was dropping. And so, in other words, it's not necessarily about how many have ad blockers, which I, by the way, I think his audience is entirely skewed. I don't think that number is nearly that high. But um, I, I think this is more about an effectiveness of pre-roll ads and middle of the stream ads, which they also have experimented with, rather than sort of the existence of ad blockers itself. And I think they see those stars like PewDiePie and others that are, you know, creating incredibly valuable content that is rivaling that of, you know, and audiences that the size of broadcast television and saying, we, we're not getting nearly enough margin out of this. We are not getting nearly enough revenue out of this because, quite frankly, we're not, you know, we're not, we're not squeezing hard enough. And so the creation of a subscription-based service lets them get out of the advertising business while simultaneously drawing more revenue out and making sure that their stars are, quote-unquote, fairly compensated for their work, thus keeping them exclusive to YouTube so that they don't go off to the next disruptive solution that may come along and start streaming videos and offering up you know, other stars like PewDiePie. So I think this is a preventative move for them to start to tie up some of these, these you know, uh, these these entertainers and you know in some informers information providers as well that here it is here's a way for you to make money and we can now compensate you in a way that makes sense for our business i think you're right i think it was absolutely a uh a competitive move against the hulus and yeah that's exactly right to say how do we because all i mean all the talent on youtube is it's different than hulu all the talent on youtube are free agents could do whatever they want to. And they That's exactly back, right. They came back with the New Deal and said, hey, we talked about this last week. Hey, you know what? If you don't want to be part of this YouTube Red thing, we're going to make you private, which means exactly. we're going to crush your entire business model. You know, when sure I was, they did it in a nice way. Yeah, and when I was – so when I was growing up and my 
putting on my marketing big boy socks in in television, one of the things that uh, we used to talk about was brand loyalty to the network. And so there was a time in television where families and you know research would show this that families would become loyal to particular networks. You were a CBS family, you were an ABC family, you were an NBC family. And then ultimately when cable started to fragment that audience a little bit, you would still be loyal to networks. So no matter what HBO put out or no matter what, you know, NBC put out, you'd give it first dibs, you'd give it a first shot. And the programming would associate with that brand. And now what you see is is that the audiences just don't have that at all. They don't care where it is. They yeah. just want their their fans and or loyal to the actual show itself. So your kids, for example, they don't care where PewDiePie is. They're going to go find him wherever he lands. And so if he goes to Hulu, they'll go listen to him and watch him there. If he's on YouTube, they'll listen to him and watch him there. If he's on HBO, they'll listen to him and watch him there. And so those artists are going to become big in big demand. And so tying them up is a very, very smart thing to do. The one thing I do have to say as we close out this segment is uh, PewDiePie just released a book, his first book. And my son, uh, my youngest, pre-ordered it, bought it with his own money, and when it came in the post, was jumping up and down like gold had just arrived. Nice. And uh, by the way, it made on the New York Times bestseller list. So this is, a, I mean, we talk about uh, PewDiePie <clears throat> in the Content Inc. book. It's, it, it's, it's, this is the, the example of building your audience and then diversifying that into multiple revenue streams. And PewDiePie has many different revenue streams where it's advertising as one, made $7.4 million on advertising and merchandise, and now he's launching books. Now he's got the YouTube Red deal, on and on and on. So it's just interesting that, you know, some of these people – have that figured out a little bit better than these large an, enterprises yeah. out there. It's a right. It's an amazing. It's an amazing thing. It really is what they. You know. The, I mean, the opportunity. Well, anyway, I mean, getting us off on a rant and a rave here, but you know, the the opportunity for content these days is just uh, unbelievable. It is. It is a very very hard but very very big opportunity that's out there. Well, speaking of hard and cut opportunities, our friend Mark Zuckerberg uh, was a little <laughs> bit in the news. Um, so lately, I don't what? know where you I was going with that. You can't just throw that out yeah, there. I'm, you know, I'm just, you know, we'll, we'll come back to that. Oh. So <laughs> our good friend, Marky Mark, um, was talking about crowdfunding and a platform that looks like Facebook that isn't crowdfunded in a video. It was on a Vanity Fair um, event that was just recently. So this comes to us courtesy of YouTube, of, of course, the YouTube video. Where Mark Zuckerberg in this event, and this is way into the event, it's one of the last questions actually from one of the audience members in a, uh, I guess about a half hour long event. And he answers the question that basically the audience member comes up to him and says, we want to know, I basically want to know how ads and your sort of proliferation of ads in the, the interface of Facebook do you worry, Mark, about the ultimate crowding out of content to where ads are so, you know, so abundant that they crowd out content and then a disruptive <clears throat> source of coming along and crowdfunding content and creating a platform like Facebook, which basically provides the same value without the ads? And do you worry about that? And he said, no, I don't, very bluntly. And basically then it went on to talk about, and this is the interesting part, what we can have a quick discussion about, is he says, well, 
ads actually, as they start to converge with content, and whether he's talking about native here or just pure content provided by brands or not, is a little unclear, but ads, as they start to converge with content, start to become meaningful and a meaningful part of the experience. And, you know, it, it, and then he said actually that there are countries where this is already starting to prove true, where ads as they converge with content are becoming a meaningful and preferred way of the experience from consumers' perspective. And he expects that the U.S. will follow suit along with that. And I don't know, maybe I'm a little more cynical on that than you are. What did you think about this? Well, you know what blew me away is when he answered the question, he didn't even flinch. He said that, of course, I'm, I'm like, but of, but of course, right. of course, add, right. add to the experience, or will ultimately add to the experience. So basically, he almost said, hey, we're early into this process. That's but right. Ultimately, as uh, advertisers compete more and more, and we show the more valuable ads over the less valuable ones, they're all up in the ante. They're all doing better getting their communication out there. And we've seen in these other countries that it does add to the experience. And they, you know, they want the ads as much as they do the content. Say, I'm, I'm more cynical than you are. I think that yeah. everybody really wouldn't want to. But he absolutely believes that this is just something that we're all going to uh, appreciate. We want that advertising message because they've gotten so good at crafting it. It's, it's ultimately relevant to us. I don't see it happening right now. It seems like we're a, a long way from that at this point. Well, it's, he's so yeah. sure of himself. I know it, it. It was amazing, actually, and you know, I, I mean, we made the reference to the cut remark. I mean, he, you know, he's he, he's in good shape. I mean, he's in this video. He's yeah, he's been working out, and but the the point being, you know, I th- it felt a little bit like you know, sort of you know that strict ant that you had that made you eat your vegetables and told you that you were going to like it, whether you liked it or not. And it felt a little like that, like, no, this is happening and you're going to like it. And, you know, and this is, you know, if you want Facebook, this is what you have to do and you will like it. It's not unlike, you know, when, you know, even going back to the sort of early television with 30 second ads, it's like, no, no, we're going to put ads every, you know, every eight minutes into a show and you're going to like it because it's going to be a chance for you to pause and basically include that part of the experience in your overall television watching experience. And uh, I just don't know. I don't I don't feel like consumers are going to be going, oh, please, please, please give me more ads or give me even contextual ads. I just have a feeling that if we don't, if it doesn't shift over to pure value for the consumer of content, that you know that that ultimately that if something's going to get lost in translation there. But it wasn't it funny when he was talking. He was answering that because uh, it says, "Hey, could a crowdsourced, you know, Facebook competitor <laughs> right. come up?" And he's answering that question. He's like, "Well, they're going to have to base it on an advertising model right. because our goal is to connect the world." Yes. And if you're going to connect the world, that's uh, that's our audience, the entire world. Right. And to do that, we It's need an expensive to make it proposition. Free. Right. And, and it's we, an expensive proposition, right? Yeah, so we're spending all this money, but it has to be free and anyone that's going to compete against us and with a different type of business model is is not going to be successful, he basically said it. So. Yeah, you know, it's in, it's just it it comes back to we we talked about this I think a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about sort of the the limiting of the internet and where, you know, it was coming down. We talked about it last week when we talked about, you know, that study that came out from Michael Wolf during the Yahoo um, DAC presentation where people are spending, 
you know, 80%, I'm getting to get these numbers wrong, but it's like 80% of their time on like eight websites and, and Facebook is one of them for sure. And we've talked about this where this sort of limiting down of the internet to sort of a small number of, of, of platforms and how that really limits. And I was of the opinion that, well, the openness of the internet will solve some of that. And, you know, this, this flies in the face of that. This basically says, well, n- no, it's going to be, you know, it, as I've said before, Facebook is the broadcast media of our time. It is going to be where you spend most of your time getting entertained and getting informed from the content your friends provide. But then I start to think, can't, anytime you bet against technology and a disruptive technology and you basically say this is the way things are going to be, you tend to be wrong. And if I had to bet, I would be putting bets on technology that will allow for people to connect. Like if there was a technology that allowed me to connect to you and my friends and my family and, and all the people that I want to see updates from, but I don't need a platform to do that. And it doesn't need to be monetized because quite frankly, the technology just enables it inherently. I, I think that would be a better way. And to, 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 to try and bet on that technology never emerging I think might be, you know, I don't, you know, not that they shouldn't, not that they shouldn't go forward. It's not like you go, oh, well, it's going to come along, so we should give up. But I, I think, I think that it, 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 it may, the openness of the internet may prove Zuckerberg wrong here. Well, I think that's why he invested in Oculus Rift too, because he even talked to, I don't, I watched actually the whole video. It's a 30 yeah. minute video. I watched the whole thing, not just the clip about the advertising portion. And he basically was saying, it's such. It's so funny to hear this. It's such a pain to take out the phone and put it to your ear and like have to like. <laughs> I know. Right? I'm like, what? It's like <laughs> think about no. that. That's the way I he's know. thinking about it. He's like, we yeah. should be doing where I can move my head and I can. It sends signals from my brain and does this and this, and that's why he's thinking about this 360. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, oh my god, he's real. It real. I mean, that's amazing that he's yeah. actually thinking like that. He must Yeah. Be. I mean, it, you know, look, it, there's 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 no doubt that Facebook is a very very smart and forward-leaning company. And they will evolve. They will pivot. And that will be the really interesting question to me is is can they pivot in a way that keeps them relevant because, you know, we started to see even some of the kids moving off of Facebook and and all of that. And I think you're exactly right. This is, you know, this is what's behind many of their acquisitions and that sort of thing. And so as a marketer, uh, you know, it, truly what it means to me, you know, sort of the takeaway here for a marketer is it's things are changing fast and, you know, making big bets, uh, you know, on anything that's going to take any time to get launched is, you know, is is fraught with risk. And so moving things quickly, iteratively, this, you know, agile processes is, is, is certainly a, a, a better, more optimal way to go. And by the way, as we close this uh, segment out, if you if anyone listening to this watches the video, the guy that is the chief scientist yeah, for yeah, right. Rift says, we can't do what we need to do. Uh, with virtual reality, and t- unless we hook directly to the node of the brain or whatever right, he's talking exactly. about, I'm like, we haven't figured out a way to do that. But they're <laughs> yeah, thinking about it. Exactly. They're thinking they're gonna, about how do I get inside are, the skull? Yeah. I'm like, oh my god. We are this. all going to have those little connections on the back of our head, like Neo in the Matrix. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yes. no. Okay, our last story of the show this week comes to us courtesy of CMO.com. And I love the headline here uh, is it's brands, it's you, not the consumers. And the way this article opens up, you know, this is sort of a personal note here. I truly hope 
that the author meant to give homage to de- my favorite poet in the entire world is W.H. Auden. I love W.H. Auden so much. I'm an English lit geek, so forgive me for that. But he opens up the article. The, the, the lead of the article starts, down, starts out by saying, pull down the posters, cancel the caterer, and unplug the hype machine. The heralded age of participation has been postponed due to a lack of, well, participation. And so those, it's that first few sentences or a few first few phrases there, pull down the posters and cancel the uh, caterer, which is it's a, the poem that was made famous in Four Weddings and a Funeral, if you saw that movie. But um, anyway, moving on from my English lit geekdom, the <laughs> article goes on by saying, Basically, consumers are saturated with opportunities to make friends with brands, and it's getting more and more difficult to capture their attention and interest via the web. This is a shocking revelation, by the way. Content is the game changer that will spark a connection with consumers as long as the underlying strategy is both user-focused and purposeful. Yay? Okay. That's according to the findings of a recently released report by research group J. Walter Thompson entitled Participation Beyond the Hype, which surveyed 5,600 people across seven countries in the Asia-Pac region, including China, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, Australia, and New Zealand. And the interesting thing to me here was is that they were talking about this idea of participation with brands and people participating, and it goes on to talk about how that was really a myth, but I didn't even know we were in <laughs> I didn't even know this was a thing. Did you know that this was a thing? I didn't know it was a thing. I just <laughs> learned that it was a thing, but apparently we weren't included in, in the thing, thing. right? Yeah. I, I, I so yeah, it's it's fascinating to me because I mean, look, I think there's a big difference here between participating and this these two items often get conflated quite honestly, which is this idea of relationship and participation with a brand over a social media channel and content that actually delights. And the difference, I always use this as the difference because when people go, well, I don't really understand the difference. It's like, well, okay, so here's the difference. Back in the nineties, when back when I was in TV still, there was this whole trend of movies and television shows doing the choose your own adventure stuff where you would be a participant in the audience and you could choose the way the show ended. And consumers hated it. They didn't want to do it. They, it, just, it basically fell flat on its face. And why? Because when we're in a content consumption mode, we want to be surprised. We want to be entertained. We don't want to do the work. We want to actually consume the entertainment in a way that entertains us, makes us feel inspired, makes us laugh, makes us cry, makes us think. We don't want to be the ones to choose how your story ends. We want you to tell us how the story ends and then maybe give us an alternative ending if we think that might be cool. And that's the difference is that we as people don't want to participate with brands in some sort of interactive way. What we want is we want the content that adds value to our life in a way that you are prescribing to us. And that's the difference. And that's why I think content can still be the answer here, but it's the, and participation isn't a thing if it, if it ever was a thing. Does that make sense? No, it, it, it does make sense. And I think as I read the article through and even some of the experts that were giving opinions as to what happened – I think that it, it, I have a rant on some of these that are, I'm not going to go in specifically <laughs> right. on, on them, but it, it's the whole issue where, well, it was a bait and switch where we, you know, this internet thing and we can now put our content out there. But they basically 
they took the same kind of thinking from advertising and then they shoved it into these areas on the web and they just expected because they could connect directly that this participation would happen even though they're not changing their behaviors. They're just sending out crappy content. That's right. And it's no value involved. And then the other thing that really bothered me was then this whole section of, oh, you've got to focus on being different and your message has to be interesting and blah, blah, blah. Like we've heard that a million times, right? But then they give examples of Nutrigrain's Unstoppable campaign and Levi's series of commuter right, jeans, which spots. were just great ads. They They're were just, just ads, right? It's just yeah. I mean, yeah. If you want to that Nutrigrain, that, that Nutrigrain one is really awesome. By the way, that that ad is just so good. Have you you know what they're talking about? Have you seen that? I've ad? not seen it. Oh my god! It's it's I it's see it. Oh, you just yeah, just it's it's really good. It's 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 a little like edgy. Well, not a little. It's a lot edgy. It's just great. Really? It's just no, you yeah. my interest now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it just out. really great. No, but it sounds like branded content. Yeah, oh it's it's exactly. Well, it's just a great ad. It's yeah. brand it's branded content in the heaviest way because it's a it's a wonderful ad. You know, it's the same as Dove's campaign for real beauty. It's the same yeah. for, you know, the the old spice guy. It's the same as all of these great ads that tell great wonderful emotional stories but they are blatantly advertising some of them can be quite cute and interesting and innovative we just saw one uh, uh our coo pam gazelka sent one us to us this week which was a barbie's new ad for the their oh, the new doll was, I love which is that. it's getting rave reviews and it's a wonderful wonderful piece of advertising that's what it is. It's a wonderful piece of advertising that really reinvents the brand in a new way. It's not content marketing. Yeah. And it's not content that's going to add value to anybody's life in a way that entertains them other than in a 30-second spot that brands, that sells the brand. So that's the difference. But I think the, the big issue here, and it comes down to the fact that that consistent delivery of value over time is exactly. not what any of these brands are set up to do. That's they're right. all set up around campaigns, mostly product-driven. But even if they aren't, they're still short-term campaigns. And if we think about all the great relationships we have in the world with media companies, with, with, with our friends and colleagues, it's consistently delivering that value over time, and that's what brands are just terrible at doing. And they don't really bring that up. They don't really talk about that consistency over time. They just talk, talk about, oh well, if a brand just does this, it's gonna it works fine. No, it exactly. doesn't. Exactly. You, if you do it for a short period of time, it doesn't matter. It's not gonna work. That's right. That's exactly right. I'm off my soapbox. Now. Yeah. Well. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you climb down off of that and then climb back up. Oh. On a wonderful, wonderful soapbox, which is of course the soapbox of our sponsor, Marketo. Oh, we have another again the second week. Love of it. Our wonderful partner, Marketo, and we have a new offering. I love. It. You know what Marketo's doing? They're mixing it up. They're, they're making our, it. They're making it challenging on the host here because I got different creative every week. This is why what? you get I the big bucks, party. I love it. I love it when our sponsors challenge us. So this one this week is a great little piece of content called The Power of A-B Testing. Now, I don't know if you test your content or not, and you've thought about A-B testing, but if you're not, you're in trouble. You need to be be testing your headlines. You need to be testing your content. You need to be testing all this stuff. Huffington Post does that. They they do A-B testing of their headlines on their content to see which ones are resonating the most. Well, here's the thing. It's impossible to know which ones are going to work and which ones are the most effective if you don't know which elements of your programs are contributing to these efforts and which you're working against them. And that's the whole thing. And that's where the whole ebook goes into that. So don't waste another second assuming what works. And that's what we do. 
we assume that this is the one because it feels right to us or the editorial team approved it, but it doesn't mean anything until you test it. That's why it, the simplest uh, the simplest area is starting up. If you're not just at least doing that with your email headlines, you've got problems. You'd be doing the blog post headlines. You can do it with everything. So don't waste another second. Sign up for this thing. Uh, you can download it at bit.ly slash marketo-ab-testing. That's bit.ly slash marketo-ab-testing. So if you are not A-B testing, I want you to check this out. If you are A-B testing, odds are you might be doing it wrong. So I want you to get this ebook sponsored by our good friends at uh, Marketo and... Uh, I'm just thankful they're putting this stuff out. Absolutely. And- we all well, we all know what happens when we assume things. Don't we, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. I have no idea what you're talking when about. When we assume things I assume things all the time and don't assume things, Joe. It's <laughs> because don't stop assuming. Stop it. Stop, Stop assuming. Stop uh, all right, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for your favorite segment of our little show here called our Rants and Rave section, where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave on something that, well, something that makes us feel like, you know, the wrong side of a Def Jam poet, or quite frankly, like it's singing to us the song of Circe's. Um And so let's see, you're going first because you have this old marketing this I week. Do. I'm going first, and uh, you know you mentioned in the beginning all about Grantland, which was a wonderful poem, by the way. I, I got I've gotten more emails and tweets about the death of that website than I think I've gotten about. I, I certainly got more on that one than I got on the death of GigaOm um, or anything like that. Isn't it I, crazy how, how loyal an was, audience they had? It out was there? it was beloved that site. So, anyways, I, for those of you that don't know, so I may, maybe if you're not into sports, but ESPN announced last late last week uh, the closing of its popular sports journalism site Grantland, and uh, there are many. You know, everybody was tweeting about it. The whole you know slate said the whole of Twitter was mourning the loss of Grantland. Huffington Post called the movie dumb after ESPN called it an incredibly smart decision for them to make. Uh, but none of that matters. The deal is done. And I actually, I, I go on, I do a run every Saturday morning. Uh, so I went out and I was going running and I'm like, I've got to write about this. Uh, Cause you and I have talked about this thing a long time. And I came back and I wrote this article on LinkedIn and I basically, the title is Nike comma under armor missing huge opportunity with Grantland closing and i basically went through the rationale of why esp or why nike should buy grantland and my my rant is actually actually it's not at nike it's not at under armor it's not at puma it's not at ford or kia or any of those other companies i guess i'm just upset that nobody's thinking about this thing yeah you have uh you know grantland did 5 million visitors, according to Business Insider, 5 million visitors per month going to, which is a small percentage for ESPN, but, you know, 5 million visitors is 5 million visitors, very loyal offering. And I just went through, this is just to think about how expensive advertising is and how uh, minimal the costs are to creating a content program or platform. Listen to this. So I break down the numbers and I went through back into Nike's fiscal reports. In 2014, Nike spent a little over $3 billion, that's with a B, on what they call demand creation. And their demand creation is marketing and advertising, but basically it's mostly advertising. So even one 
30 second ad during a premium television sports event would that would run in the maybe tens of hundreds of thousands up to we know the Super Bowl this year is going to be about five million dollars for one ad. So just think about that for a second. That's eight million comes to eight million dollars per day that Nike spends to get people to buy their stuff. Yep. And I'm just throwing that out there because I would imagine purchasing Grantland would be would take a couple days of money. Right. Exactly. Couple days of money. I mean, that's it's, right. I, and what would you get for that? You would get the subscriber relationship. You would get the content. You would start getting the data. And we've talked about this, this show at at all the time about the kind of wonderful data. And why would I think that this is important? Because we've already seen Nike and Under Armour do this stuff, and we've talked about it on this show, whether Nike is building their data program, and they did this great program called Nike Our Year or Your Year, depending on what you want to call it, where everybody who has a Nike app, they sent a customized video to them using the data from the app that that basically showed pictures of, you know, drawn pictures of where you run past and what your goal would be for your marathon or half marathon for the next year. Really amazing. And then Under Armour buys uh, an app like Endomondo and they're all buying these apps. They all want data. They all want direct connections with customers uh, and readers. And they're, and I just don't understand why they're not looking at these opportunities. So I made the whole case and we'll put the article in the show notes, but yeah. I just made the case that it doesn't have to be Nike. It doesn't have to be Under Armour, but those are the first two that I thought of. It could be a lot of other companies. But wouldn't it be amazing to just have the journalists go free and let them do their thing and build their audience, and you would re- reap the benefits of provided by Nike? And you could monetize that in a thousand different ways. But I just don't think they're thinking of it, Robert. I, it's it's amazing to me. I mean, go and we and we had this exact same conversation when. Um, and I was not a big Grantland fan. I mean, I was an occasional reader, um, but certainly not not to, not a fan like you were, and some of the some of my friends on on social media who 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 were really upset by this. This is the same conversation we had when GigaOM uh, did the exact same sort of explosion, and we wondered then why somebody wasn't you know a big technology company or a big one of the big information consulting firms, you know, an Accenture or somebody like that wouldn't purchase GigaOM for a small amount of money that they put into marketing. And even if it failed, to your point, even if it failed miserably, it's a rounding error in their marketing budget. And they get the experience, they get the they get the ability to have a connection with consumers. They come in on a white horse, you know, they're the hero that saved Grantland. And it just, even as a short-term branding play, I just can't understand why it's not, you know, I mean, maybe there are other things at work here with people that are smarter than us, but it just seems to me to be a really, a, a really short-term and missed opportunity here for, for, for brands like that to, to do something interesting. And why ESPN didn't think about this, right? Why not ESPN didn't think about, instead of just closing it, why not sell it? You know, why not sell it? But why not even go? You, you could go to multiple partners and said, "Hey, we want to keep this going. It's not driving the amount of revenue we wanted to drive, but you know, here's four opportunities, or here's one sole sponsorship opportunity. It could be, it could be a whole native advertising play." I know. I, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. But I don't you know, get it either. Well, the one, the and then I'll just end with this because I thought it was weird because there were tweets that were going out from the the editorial team that said oh my last day was supposed to be wednesday but they gave me the boot today friday so i don't know what happened with this and, something and I don't, something well, must have know, gone down i think something. what happened and a lot of people said this in the comments to my post where you know once bill simmons left it was bill simmons baby and 
right. everybody else was just not on board with whatever the vision was. But you know, there's another thing we know we don't even know what happened with Bill Simmons and ESPN. Right. Now he's at yeah. HBO, living large, doing his thing, which is great. But my whole take was, hey, Nike or Under Armour, go buy this and then go say, you know, Bill Simmons, you can get back involved in this thing. You don't have to right. be full time, but you know, be our executive editor or something, or create like a new vision for it altogether. There's value in that Grantland brand. There's yeah, just absolutely. there is there's value with or without Bill Simmons. There's value in that, and even if it's at a pennies on the dollar. It would have been rather than close it down for zero. Why not sell it for one dollar and make one dollar anyway? Oh my god! Get off but just rant. just think about. Yeah. W- w- let's just say they threw fifty million dollars at it, which was is probably too much at this point. But let's just say, just think about the va- the PR value and oh, the just value of, of how many exactly. people would cover this thing. Exactly. Oh god. Exactly. I mean, and you know, if you want to look, here's a co- here's a comp for you, right? So, and we talk about this all the time. The the Australian company. Um, which was a surf stitch that bought Magic Seaweed, and I'm forgetting the other the name. They bought two magazines that, in total, had about uh, two, two, two to two and a half million visitors per month. And they bought that. They bought both of those magazines, both those online magazines, for fourteen million dollars. So yeah. let's just double that. Let's just say it was worth twenty eight million bucks. And so there you go. There's your there's your valuation right there. There's twenty eight million dollars. Let's say they could get. Ten percent of that. There's two point eight million dollars they could have anyway. Go. Uh, it's 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 crazy. Well, I have a rave. That oh, um, yeah, I have a rave. And and speaking of buying companies, this is exactly that. So this comes. The link that we'll put in the show notes here comes from Fortune.com. And this I, this might be my favorite story content acquisition all year. This is going in my presentations just because I just absolutely love this. IBM. So here is a company that does get content really well. Um, IBM is close to finalizing a purchase of uh, the weather company. Now, if you don't know the weather company, you do know the weather company because you've watched it on TV. You've When you check weather.com, that's the weather company. When you watch the weather channel, that's the weather company. They also have a data service. They've got all kinds of stuff, as you might expect, related to what weather. And so there looks like the deal is going to be about $2 billion. It is not going to include the weather channel cable tv channel it's going to include everything but that basically and really give all the digital properties including weather.com and all the data services that they provide to all the different customers that they have now as a data service to ibm and the way the position is in the article that is here in fortune and the way i've seen a lot of the positioning online is is that this is a you know this is largely a data play which i could not agree with more it's totally a data play but Here's the difference that I think is really interesting. To me, it's more than just making Watson smarter or making a data play. This is about exactly what Joe was just talking about with regard to those companies that are buying apps, that are developing data. They're developing experiences, content-driven experiences that are going to make everything they do better. And so adding a content layer or a data information layer into their software is going to be a key piece of their differentiation. This is a really cool thing that they can now add as an experience layer over so many things that IBM does from a software and hardware perspective. You know, if you think about it, if you're going to buy 
a web content management solution from IBM or a digital asset management solution from IBM or a commerce solution from IBM, now having access to third-party data, or in this case, first-party data that is incredibly accurate weather information, gives you an ability to optimize that content for so many things, right? So if you're running IBM's commerce server as an example, and you want to optimize your rain gear, well, why not optimize it three days before it's supposed to rain in whatever region you want it to, to run in? This is just yet another great example of a company taking advantage of a content service, a data service, and applying it as a better customer experience. And I'll tag it with this. So I just love it. And I'll tag it with this. This is something that I was thinking about. I was having this conversation on an airplane just literally yesterday. And this guy, I was talking with this guy, and and I never talked to the people next to me in the airplane. And this guy stuck up a conversation with me, and we started talking. He's a sales guy, and he's selling in the mining industry. And he, he asked me a question, and the question he asked me, I was like, wow, I really didn't ever think of it this way. I mean, this guy, has the, he's the furthest thing away from content and digital and the internet and everything. And he asked me, he's, and he, he had this you know sort of southern draw because he's you know, from the mining industry, and he works with the big Caterpillar trucks and all that kind of stuff. And he said to me, he said, Robert, I don't understand something. He said, with hardware being so cheap, like those pads that y'all carry around, he said, why don't the big software companies just give out hardware with their software product? And I was like, I don't know. That seems like a really interesting thing to me because if you, you, know, you look at Amazon, for example, and when you go to Amazon, it's been basically said forever that the reason that Kindles are so inexpensive is because Amazon want, you know, that's a portal into their content. That's a portal into selling content. So they're basically giving Kindles away. Well, the reverse could also be true here as well. And so as we're thinking as a software business or a content business or an information business, why wouldn't we give sort of pre-configured portals into our content or our software away? Why wouldn't Salesforce.com give away iPads with their enterprise, you know, selling a 2,000 seats of a company? Give them all iPads that are configured with, you know, Salesforce.com suite already on it. It just seems like to me, I don't know if it's a good idea or a bad idea, but it just seems to me like an idea that I hadn't heard before. And when this guy that knew nothing about anything having to do with the Internet sort of asked me about it, I thought it was just a really interesting idea. And to me, it sort of struck that same chord of IBM buying a content company to add experiential value to their hardware and software. Why can't we buy a hardware company to add experiential value to our software? It's, I thought it was just an interesting idea. And I, I like that. I yeah. mean, I don't think it's too dissimilar from what we talked about a couple of weeks ago where Westinghouse was given away or was uh, created the programming so that they could sell the radios. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, thing. exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. It's been going on forever. It's just with these different iterations throughout the years. So anyway, yeah, it just really intrigued me. And I just, I, I, I've been thinking about it. And then the IBM thing just set me off. So was, that's my rave this week. I like it. Nice. How about this old marketing? Oh, we have this old marketing, and this one... More sports. Give us more sports, Joe. I know. Hi, Nanad. (laughs) Yeah, Nanad, we're sorry. We know you're not a big sports fan, but here you go. Um, This is courtesy of at Craig Postons, P-O-S-T-O-N-S, and he was sending me uh, not only this old marketing example, but a Content Inc. example. And I love this. So, he, so this is courtesy of Craig. Thank you, sir. And this is uh, Pro Football Talk with Mike Florio, just turned 14 years old on November 1st. 
And I thought this was an interesting example and great to use, especially we've been talking about Grantland and so many sports this issue. Let's just bring it right into this old marketing. But it was interesting because we talk about how it takes patience to do this. So, by the way, if you're not familiar with pro football uh, talk, it's now completely integrated with NBC Sports, a very popular show, uh, ad-driven for the most part, although NBC Sports uses syndicated content in multiple different ways. But I love this part. So... Basically, Mike says, I nearly pulled the plug in September 2002. Actually, he says the plug was pulled for about 36 hours. And, the, and, then, the, and then to continue to do this and create the, con, the, the content as it went, but didn't really get success until he started to post consistently every day. So basically what happened is is he was po- posting, you know, blurb here, blurb there about pro football, getting, you know, not really building the audience. Uh, you know, had a solo law practice on the side, didn't think it was going to work and wouldn't post anything on off day Saturdays and Sundays and really didn't make it work. And then made the New Year's resolution, January 1st, 2004, that said the best one he's ever kept. He said to post at least one story on the site every single day. And basically, says two years later, it became a lot more than one per day. Sprint signed with them as their first major uh, PFT sponsor. Three years later, NBC reached out. Uh, NBC started giving them all kinds of stuff, growing that relationship over time, and the business just blew up. And the one thing I love about this, Robert, is just the simplest thing. So this is a you know really good Content Inc. example, great this old marketing example. You know, it's been uh, now fourteen years but didn't see the success until started the consistency. And we talk about that where you can have have the content niche, you can target the right audience, you can get your right platform going, but if you don't deliver consistently, it will break down and you will not build that audience over time. And that's where most brands fall down. And I love this example of this old marketing simply because – that was the this this is the New Year's resolution. He kept didn't know it was the thing that would make it all go together, and that was it. Posting once per day, it doesn't have to be once per day. It could have been once per week, but it was the consistency that he had to get into, and that that's what happened. And then the site took off, and now we're talking about it as the 14th year anniversary. That that, that consistency is so important. It, it is what delivers on. So you know, one of the things last week that I had a couple of people come up to me. After uh, after our show last week, and comment on was this idea of, in fact, somebody wrote a blog post on it. I'm forgetting who it was off the top of my head, but you know this idea. We, we, you know, we talked about the gating of content, mm-hmm. and I said uh, I made the comment, and it's one that I make in workshops all the time now, where it's like if we're wondering whether to gate content, we don't have a content marketing strategy. We have, you know, we're trying to. And this is where you came up with your great line that's getting quoted all over the place now, which is you have to create value before you extract value, and. This idea of, you know, what I had said was, look, if you're creating a true content marketing strategy, people will sign up for your content after they get it, right? You know, in other words, they get that piece without registering. They'll sign up because why? Because they want the next one. And so the critical thing in that is that there is a next one and that what you're doing is you're creating that anticipatory delight where people are signing up not for the asset they get, but for the asset that they're going to get that they don't know about yet. That's a subscriber. When you when you extract a name or an address or a phone number or an email address for somebody in exchange for an asset, all you've done is create a transaction. You have not created a subscriber. When you create someone who wants to sign up for the thing that they don't even know what it is yet, but they just know based on the value of this thing that I just got, the next one's going to be great. 
then you've created a subscriber. And the key to keeping a subscriber in the sort of Jerry Seinfeld, it's not just grabbing the subscriber, it's keeping the subscriber, is that consistency, is being able to deliver consistently on that anticipatory delight. So you never break the promise. You're always there with the next one. And what happens is, is that people share that. They're going, I'm getting great content from this source, and so I can't wait for the next one. I'm going to stick around. I'm going to stay. And that's, the that's to me, the underlying value of the consistency thing. That might be my all-time favorite Seinfeld. It's not the yeah. taking of the right, reservation. Right, reservation that's that's the kind of the easy right. part. The critical deal right, is the right. keeping of the reservation. My favorite, my favorite part was when, is when the the the, 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 the customer service worker goes, "I know what a reservation for is." He goes, "I don't think you do. I don't think you do." Anyways, my friend. So, uh, where are you off to this week? I am in going to Denver this week. Nice. Um, actually, yes, I'm going up to speak to the UPCEA. It's a uh, educators conference, a marketer, basically marketing for colleges, those who are in communications and marketing for higher education. So I'm keynoting their conference on Thursday um, and then meeting with a lovely agency that has invited me to come out and speak with their uh, team and talk a little bit about content marketing on Friday. And then I'm going to be home for the weekend and then off with you my friend on our six our six week uh, adventure yeah so it's it's a busy time of year it's a waiting for this damn reno to be done in our home and you know and and i'm kind of glad to be on the road to be honest yeah i i I think the listeners kind of heard a few uh a few things happening in the background there oh did you i have my my noise canceling i have my noise canceling we could hear a little bit but it was all good i mean it wasn't overly distracting but and i didn't know if you were hungry actually i didn't know if that was the the noise we were hearing but i think it was somebody with a saw blade or something like oh dear oh no well anyways i'll be in i've got a quick trip to boston uh presenting for our really good friends at open view venture partners uh and then uh, and then again next week i'm i'm on the road with you so looking forward to it i'll be fun Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, that is it, ladies and gentlemen. For Joe Pulitzi, this is Robert Rose signing off. And you know, we do love that hashtag, this old marketing. Tweet us up. Give it those story ideas. We need those story ideas. We love this old marketing examples. Those are awesome. So do tweet us up on the Twitter thing and or send us an email, this old marketing at contentinstitute.com. And if you like this episode, number 103, we do hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com and hopefully Google Play coming soon. And all those links that we talked about today will be in the show notes that are, of course, embedded into the actual show that you'll see later this evening and then of course on the show notes page that we'll have available at thisoldmarketing.com remember folks it's your story to tell tell it well we'll see you next week on This Old Marketing is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.